Well, now to a Kiwi researcher who's already made waves in the field of breast cancer research internationally and is seeking to do the same here. Dr Emma Nolan was part of a team in Victoria, Australia, that looked into the positive effect of an osteoporosis drug on breast cancer with women with the harmful BRCA gene. Since returning to New Zealand, she set up a team at Auckland University which is collecting tissue samples with the aim of setting up lab models that mimic the breast environment. The tumour samples are grown onto gelatine-coated sponges with various drugs tested to see what the cancer cells, the actual individual's cancer cells, do. And this in time could be used, in fact, in fairly real time, could be used to assess how a patient might respond to a particular treatment option. On average, nine New Zealand women a day will receive a diagnosis of breast cancer and it'll affect one in nine women over their lifetime, as well as a a small percentage of men. Emma joined us to talk about the implications the research could have when it comes to targeting treatments for New Zealand women. So my research is all about um, creating new tools for studying breast cancer in New Zealand. So this involves um, collecting samples of breast tumours from New Zealand women who have been recently diagnosed with breast cancer and undergoing surgery. And we bring those samples with us back to the lab and we grow the cancer cells in the research lab so that we have a more um, New Zealand-specific tool for doing breast cancer research uh, in this country. Is it New Zealand-specific or is it actually personalised to the behaviour of the cancer in a given person? Oh, that's a good question. It's, I mean, I guess the idea is that it's a, a New Zealand-specific resource. So we're looking at collecting from a cross-section of New Zealand women. So looking across different types of tumours, different um, tumour grades, so how aggressive or, or late or early stage the cancer is, as well as importantly collecting from different ethnicities in our New Zealand population. So the idea that it's really sort of a snapshot or a cross-section of the patients who are being diagnosed in this country. And um, and that's kind of more, yeah, that's more the goal is creating this sort of New Zealand-specific tool as opposed to looking specifically between women and comparing, comparing um, between the different women we have in the collection. It's more about having a, a more general, a really relevant and useful resource for research. Is this anticipated, however, to perhaps become part of immunotherapy treatments in the future? Yeah, so what we what well, there's a number of um, what we things that we're hoping to happen from this new resource. Firstly, just um, being able to improve and, and support the research that we're doing in this country. So we're doing research on more relevant and New Zealand relevant tools. And secondly, also you mentioned the, this personalized this personalized angle, and I do think that is something in the future that these models could be or these tools could be used for, where you're looking more at um, treatment of these models with drugs such as immunotherapy and looking kind of on a patient-to-patient level to see whether or not these might be useful for predicting whether or not that patient could respond to to that treatment. So right now the idea is about getting this resource and these tools set up to be able to use them, and then down the track that's something that we really hope that perhaps these could be a way to actually guide and inform form treatment decisions perhaps by, by suggesting whether or not that tumour would respond to that therapy, such as immunotherapy. What are the types of tumours then that we're talking about? We're very familiar with the BRCA1 mutation carriers and the particular um, the particular issues um, that that uh, genetic um, type has for uh, a person, for their family. 
um, through the ages. But what are the what are the types of tumours? That yes, uh, carry, uh, carry on. Yes, sorry. We, so we have there's there's really um, predominantly three types of breast cancer. We have the hormone receptor positive or ER positive um, breast cancers. That this is the most common. It's around seventy percent of all breast cancers. And then we have also um, two other main types. One's called triple negative breast cancer. And that's the type of breast cancer that um, women who carry a BRCA1 mutation typically are diagnosed with. And the third type is called HER2 positive breast cancer. So these are the sort of um, three main clinical subtypes, and that really defines the treatment that the patient would receive. So if they're hormone receptor positive, they would typically receive hormone therapy as well as or, or instead of chemotherapy. HER2-positive therapy are then able to use HER2-targeting treatments, which have really had some really amazing um, results. was a really amazing discovery. Was this the Herceptin this treatment Herceptin, that became exactly. so popular, yeah, so prominent? Yes, yeah. and there's some more, um, some newer age mm-hmm. uh, HER2-targeting drugs, which are also becoming available, and they've had a really remarkable response in these women. And the third type, this triple-negative subtype, this is where we're really looking for new treatments, particularly for these women, because things like hormone therapy and, and HER2 therapy aren't possible to use in these women. So this is this is a particular subtype, which is a, a very aggressive form of breast cancer and something that, that we really do need new avenues to treat these patients. And that's where something like immunotherapy could potentially, in these patients, make a real difference. So just explain a little bit more about the scale of what you're endeavouring in trying to um, build a, a, a you know a, a significant research base from from New Zealand um, women and mainly women any men by the way where's the small percentage of men who will um, have breast cancer yes so um, I have so so far I've collected uh, samples from 22. Uh, 21 women and, twen- and one um, male breast cancer case as well. So we do have, the idea is also to have some male breast cancer cases um, within the cohort, or however it is obviously far less uh, frequent, so um, unlikely to be able to get a large number of those patients. But the idea is that um, ultimately I would like to have a sort of minimum of 100 patients within this cohort so that we're really representing that snapshot of, of breast cancer in this country. So we're sort of about a fifth of the, fifth of the way there. Um, and, but in terms of the possibility for this, actually, you know, this, we've only really started doing these collections in relatively short time frame in about the last 12 months. So because we've had such amazing support from the hospitals in, in Auckland and the patients themselves who are also um, supportive of research, that we've actually been able to generate this collection quite quickly. So I do believe that it is possible within a short time frame to reach that goal because of also because of the scale of the disease, the number of women that are being diagnosed so frequently in, in Auckland that we are able to potentially access a, a large number of women for the study. Are there other particular dynamics that you are interested in? For instance, age um, and most, if I'm correct, most people who will experience breast cancer will be older, will be later in life, but of course uh, we know what a tragic disease and uh, and what a thief it can be for, for younger women. So uh, often we're very aware of these cases. But can you talk a little bit more about age profiles? Uh, also, is there any relevance with ethnicity um, that you're really keen to, to get a really good database of? 
Yes, so that is, I mean, the age factor of breast cancer, that was actually one of the really big drivers for me going into breast cancer research, and that is because actually it's not uncommon for younger women to be diagnosed. With Typically cancers in general affect older uh, older patients. But in breast cancer we are seeing women in, the, in their 40s and 50s and often with young children and grandchildren being diagnosed. And that just has a, a huge impact on families and multi-generational impact. So that is something that I, uh, that one of the really big reasons for me going into breast cancer was, was that um, age of diagnosis. So I'm really um, wanting to ensure that we have a, a range of ages within this collection, including younger women. And then typically younger women actually tend to be diagnosed with more aggressive breast cancers than, than later stage patients too. And we're not really sure why that is, but it's likely to be genetic um, factors. And also the, the Māori and Pacifica women, we know that they've got really high incidence of breast cancer as well as lower mortality rates as well. So we know that it's really important that this is a population which is significantly impacted by breast cancer in Aotearoa. So we really need to ensure that we're capturing a, a high representation of Māori and Pacifica patients in this cohort to ensure that the research we're doing is relevant to those populations who are, who are most affected by breast cancer and therefore discoveries are most relevant and, and, and necessary for. What will you do with the tissue? What happens? Yes, that's a good question. So when we, um, so the idea is that uh, once, a, once a patient has um, their surgery, the samples go to the pathology department in the hospital and then we collect a small piece that's not required um, by the medical team and take that back to the lab with us. And then we grow the cancer cells in the lab um, in a way that we, the way that we're trying to mimic how that would grow in the patient. So we try and provide the cancer cells with the right conditions and nutrients so, and the sort of supportive structure which exists within the breast tissue. We provide those, those, that environment to the cancer cells, trying to mimic the environment of a patient in order to allow those cancer cells to grow. And then we do a number of different experiments, for example, looking at drug response, how those cancer cells respond to different drugs which are available um, in the clinic to, to, forward, to treat women. Now they respond. We can, um, we can freeze some of the cells as well, so we can create a sort of long-term living resource. So when we freeze the cells, they actually remain alive in this process. It's a chiropreservation, sort of like a science fiction movie where you can um, reanimate cells still being alive later on. So it creates a sort of um, long-term resource. And then at the end, of course, um, that we have a, 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 based on our ethics approval, we have a disposal process as well. Um, whether whether either get medically disposed or we can do a karakia on the tissue before disposing, for example. So we have a process in place for the for the tracking disposals of samples as well. So the idea is creating this um, is creating this resource that we can really use for a lot of different experiments um, that we can do on the and with the key goal of really understanding how cancer cells grow, how they behave, and how they respond to drugs, and how how you know what what are the factors that influence the drug response of, of that, those cancer cells and therefore how can we make drugs work better if we know why a cancer cell isn't responding well to a drug does that mean that we can then try and intervene and make drugs work better so it is a living tumor in, in effect yes. and yes. how how have you managed that like what's been the breakthrough to, to grow the tumor on um, i think they're on some kind of sponges aren't they Yes, so the the way we we, we grow, we have a, a few different models that we're we're working with and optimizing in the lab, and one of the um, models is the sponge model. So the idea is that sort of a specialized sponge is soaked, um, it's coated in something called gelatin, and we provide a lot of the nutrients that are in that we know would be within the um, 
blood system, for example, blood circulation of a patient, um, things like insulin and glucose and things like that we provide within the media. Uh, sorry, the media is like the food that you provide to the, the cancer cells. And so they grow in the sponges, and the sponges uh, are more about providing that structural support. So when, when cancer cells are growing within the breast tissue, they, they are, they're sort of on in the scaffold. It's a biological scaffold, but it's a, a sort of a, a structural environment, and that's what that sponge mimics, and that allows the, the cancer cells to have that support. So they, they do remain in, uh, alive on these sponges, and we, can, we keep them for about... The sponge culture method is only we've only probably keep them alive for about a week after that, and after that the the cells begin to become a little bit unhappy. So it's those first few days after surgery where we we grow them on these sponges in this using this special method in the lab that we're really able to really test the response of drugs. So it's quite a a fast uh, and quick um, experiment where we we are taking the, the the cancer cells from a patient growing them on these specialised sponges that sort of mimics that breast environment and then very rapidly testing drugs and looking at that response within a short time frame. Where did this idea come from? Where did the concept come from? Has it been done elsewhere? Yeah, so patient working with, with patient uh, cancer cells has been around for a long time and, and in the last five years there's been a real push, um, really driven from overseas, about this three to you know, trying to mimic best how cancer cells grow in patients. So you know, traditionally, when you grow cancer cells uh, um, in the past, they were traditionally grown sort of in these layers, um, these two-dimensional sort of flat layers of cells that were grown in plastic dishes. And that was a really um, important aspect of doing research. It was a very traditional sort of pillar of cancer research. But it's not really that relevant to how, how cancer cells grow in a patient, which in, pat- in particular, they grow within a three-dimensional environment. A, a tumour or cancer is, is not two-dimensional, it's three-dimensional. And so there's been this real push in the last five years to really try and mimic the best conditions we, that we can in the lab that more accurately mimics how they grow in patients. So that if you're doing research in the lab that is really um, accurately mimicking a patient, then that means the, the discoveries you make in the lab hopefully would have a, a greater impact or more likely to have an impact on, on patient tr- um, treatment and survival. Sorry, so it's a long-winded answer, but essentially, overseas, and there's been a real push in the last five to ten years to use these these methods of growing these, these cells in this way. And then, in the last, I'd say, perhaps the last twelve months in New Zealand, this has really been um, starting to to increase a lot too. So there are groups that are are working on this, and at the University of Auckland, but also University of Otago in Christchurch and Wellington as well. That are sort of now there's this kind of more push towards using. Um, cancer cells directly from New Zealand patients and growing them in this way that is a, a better representation of how they grow in patients. Are there unique characteristics, or if not unique, more common than elsewhere characteristics to breast cancer patients in New Zealand? Are there differences in what you might see in different populations? Yes, yeah, so that's something we <clears throat> that we are not really sure. So we, we know, for example, that we have a very high prevalence of breast cancer in New Zealand. So we have a very high rate of diagnoses. We know that this is more common in, in Māori and Pacific populations. And we also know that um, in New Zealand we have quite high rates of specific types of breast cancer. So, for example, we have high rates of, of her, quite high rates of HER2-positive breast cancer. And this particularly seems to be prevalent in Māori and Pacific patients. And so we, we are seeing these trends towards these differences, but what we don't know is the underlying causes of this. And there isn't necessarily any suggestion that there's biological differences between patients in New Zealand versus patients overseas. 
And so we're not to we and that isn't really an aspect that I'll be um, working on in the lab is trying to you know a comparison between patients. But we know that it certainly is the landscape is different. We do have a lot of breast cancer and we had have a lot of aggressive types of breast cancer in this country. So that's why it is really important that when we do research in the lab that we are using these these New Zealand um, patient tissues to ensure that we are doing research that's most relevant um, and sort of immediately relevant to our patients. So discoveries we make in the lab are being tested on on New Zealand tissue and therefore are, are immediately relevant to our patients, rather than relying on on tissue and well, data I mean, that's come that's from overseas. A really important point that you make. If it is a short term investigation that you do, perhaps within a week it can inform the treatment of the individual patient, potentially, if you're seeing one drug responding really well over another. Exactly, and that's what we really hope that this, you know, we would need in order to to have this become in clinical use, to, you know, obviously a lot of, um, a lot more uh, trials and tests would be to done, would need to be done, but that is certainly a long-term goal, is that, you know, if we can really sort of, I, call, I think of it as like a sort of quick and dirty analysis of a drug response. So if we can really sort of rapidly have a look to see if that those cancer cells are responding to this therapy or this other therapy. And we hope that that could, within a short time frame, help at least to, to guide decision making and at least to provide some, you know, some sort of lab test that might indicate whether or not a patient might respond. Of course, it's not go- never going to be a guarantee that that means that that patient would, of course, then respond to that drug. But it's about just sort of helping to guide therapy decision to ensure that we are um, ultimately treating the patient with the right with the right drug and avoiding unnecessary treatments in women as well. I know your focus is on drugs. It's really interesting. I think there is a neuro surgeon or someone working anyway in the in the um, field of brain tumours at the moment who's working with fasting and I know there's a lot of talk about the impacts of glucose and sugar and various other things on the rate at which cancer tumours grow so right across the board there's the pharmacological and then there's just understanding what it is that feeds or inhibits a tumour full stop and this personalised tissue it seems to me would be uh, so powerful in, in trying to advance our battle with with cancer but stay with where you're working which is the pharmaceuticals themselves the drugs themselves can you tell us a bit more you were involved in a study that showed an osteoporosis drug um denosumab is it how do i say it yes denosumab could be effective in stopping the growth of cells that can lead to breast cancer this is in those who do have the BRCA1 mutation now this was when you were working overseas emma yeah yes that's great where were you, Victoria, at the time? Just tell us more about the, the process. Yeah, so this was research that I did when I was doing my PhD in Melbourne um, at, a, at an institute called the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. And it was um, it was a really, really exciting study because we were looking at um, the drivers or what was initiating, what could be initiating br- uh, breast cancer in women that carry this BRCA1 gene mutation. So this is a mutation that... Um, you know, re- results in, in sometimes up to an eighty percent, or can be you know up to sixty, seventy, eighty percent chance of breast cancer arising in these women that carry this mutation. And unfortunately, they often develop quite aggressive forms of breast cancer as well. So often, this triple negative type of cancer. And so, for these women, currently the options are typically that they would be offered a, a prophylactic mastectomy, so a, a breast removal surgery often at a younger age, to, to avoid the risk of developing cancer, uh, breast cancer. Or they'll have more regular ultrasounds and mammograms in the hope of an early detection and diagnosis. And so my, my PhD was all about trying to find an alternative option to that breast removal surgery. So perhaps a drug that these women could take which might offset or at least delay 
the onset of breast cancer so that they can have buy them some time before having surgery. Um, and so that's what we were we were focused on is trying to sort of identify the the pathway that was causing breast cancer to develop so that we could then have a drug to to block that pathway and prevent that development. And it was um, very fortunate that the drug that that um, that we identified as being potentially able to block this process and delay breast cancer was it was an already available drug, which was denosumab, a, a drug used to treat um, patients with osteoporosis. And it was also used in the breast cancer field, but as a treatment for patients that have um, breast cancers that have developed in the bone or spread to the bones. So it's typically, um, you know, so it is already being used for to treat breast cancer. And so that's actually a very favourable situation because then it's a repurposing of an existing medication that we know the safety of, we know the safety profile, um, and then using it for a different purpose, which in this case is to prevent breast cancer. And what was your particular contribution to that? I'm reading about a novel pathway that's hyperactivated in the breast epithelium of women with these mutations. Was yes. that your specific discovery? How did that happen? Yes, that was. So that was, um, you know, it's always a, these these discoveries are always a team effort. Um, but I was the the lead investigator on the study, so this was something that we looked. Um, so I would be analysing the the breast tissue that was donated to research by women with who carried this BRCA1 mutation, um, and comparing that to healthy breast tissue donated by women who were having a um, breast uh, reduction surgery, and so comparing the two types of tissues, and and then that's when I de- identified this pathway that was sort of seemed to be overactive in the breast tissue of these women specifically who had that BRCA1 mutation. So if we know the pathway is overactive, then that was a good indication that it was contributing to the breast cancer development in these patients, which we then were able to test and to prove. Um, so it was a really, it was a very, um, very exciting study to, to be part of, and particularly a study to lead, and very rewarding too that it ended up leading to the initiation of a clinical trial to test this as a breast cancer prevention therapy, which is still ongoing so that as was an international trial. That was your PhD work in, yes. in Melbourne. And then you went to London, 2017, for a postdoctoral fellowship at the Francis Crick Institute, London. And there's another exciting development here, and I, don't, I know they don't come quite as quickly as me summarising it, um, but this was quite recent. Um, what was the... the, the and, and at this point, you're looking at the dynamics of the, of the tumour microenvironment when it's metastasizing, am I correct? Yes, that's correct. So then, I, so this is this is about this the spread of breast cancer to other tissues. So in advanced breast cancer patients, breast, the breast cancer cells can actually move from the primary site, which is the breast, to secondary organs. And for some reason, in breast cancer, there seems to be typically sort of key organs that the cancer cells prefer to spread to, and that typically is the bones, the brain, the lungs, and the liver. So these four sites tend to um, have a higher chance of breast cancer spreading uh, to these organs compared to others. So we were particularly, well, I was particularly interested in understanding why those organs were a preferable site for cancer cell spread. And I was particularly interested in the lungs, um, as that's a very common common site and um, is one, of course, that has uh, quite serious implications for the patients. And so that was um, looking at why, so why do breast cancer cells grow in the lungs? What, what is it about the lung environment that supports breast cancer cells? And that was a really interesting um, discovery there as well. For example, we, we identified that breast cancer cells actually were sort of talking to cancer cells, with, uh, sorry, to lung cells. So, 
you know, breast, when the breast cancer cells arrived in the lungs, they actually started to communicate with cells that actually just had a normal role within the lungs themselves. They were sort of just doing their doing their thing normally in the lungs, um, having their their role, which was um, to produce like that soapy um, liquid, which kind of uh, reduces surface tension in the lungs. It stops your lungs um, collapsing and sticking together. So these cells have a really important role in just normal lung function, but actually. Um, that we found that actually they were starting to, they, when cancer cells arrived there, they were started to talk to them and communicate and actually helped those cancer cells to grow there. So that was a really interesting finding because if, if we know why why they're able to grow in the lung and why that helps them, then we can potentially try and stop that process from occurring. We often bemoan the loss of our brilliant young researchers overseas, although they must go uh, because that's part of developing their careers and their experience. But what was it that brought you home? Yeah, so that was that. It was always a goal. I mean, I loved I I, I loved working overseas, and I had some amazing opportunities there, and um, were able to access you know some incredible projects and technologies that perhaps at the time were not available in New Zealand. But it was always my goal to to return home because I wanted to. It was always you know my ultimate goal to start my own breast cancer research group, and I wanted to start that in in my home country, and I wanted to to have that next sort of step of my stage of my career where I'm leading a team and I wanted that to be in New Zealand. So it had been about um, just over 10 years when I decided last year to come home. So it really, it felt like the right time because it, I had, you know, I had this decade of, of amazing experience overseas, but I really wanted to take that next step and have that independent career and that independent team. But I wanted to do that in my home country to ensure that I was you know, of course, is you know being close to family is, is really important, but also just having that, um, you know, that that launching of that that big next big big step of a career, doing that in my home country was was really important to me. Emma Nolan, Dr. Emma Nolan, researcher, and more information about this uh, database that she is uh, compiling. Uh, if you are interested or someone you know might be interested in participating, I'm pretty sure there'll be a link on our website through to that. If not, we'll make sure we get one there for you.